Veterans Path, helping veterans find peace, acceptance, transformation, and honor through practical tools like meditation and mindfulness, physical and outdoor experiences, and a community of camaraderie. I'm John McCaskill, a Navy SEAL commander turned mindfulness teacher. Here on the Veterans Path podcast, I interview veterans, athletes, corporate leaders, and many others who found peace through the practices of meditation and mindfulness, breaking down the stigma of pursuing mental health and making it a priority, improving and saving lives. All right, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good day. John McCaskill here with my guest, Catherine DeVaris. Catherine is a psychiatric occupational therapist with 10 years of experience in mental health and wellness. She has postgraduate training in vocational rehab and returned to work after stress burnout. She had a practice in South Africa where she consulted with corporate insurance companies to assess and treat clients who had been off work due to mental health challenges and burnout. Yes, she's also the second guest I've had on in as many episodes with a background in South Africa. I don't know what to tell you. I connect with my South African roots, I guess. Catherine specializes in workplace wellness and company culture as well as emotional wellness. That said, Catherine is leading a workshop here in Virginia Beach in March on sensory intelligence, which we will cover during the show. But our listeners, the listeners to this podcast, get a special discount using the promo code VVPODCAST. That's capital V, capital V, capital P, podcast. And the information for the workshop is in the comments section. That's along with the, uh, the promo code. So... We're going to learn a lot more about Catherine, her work in psychiatric occupational therapy, what brought her to the U.S. from South Africa, and what she's doing now with bringing mindfulness into the workplace. That's all here in today's episode of the Veterans Path Podcast. But before we jump into the conversation with Catherine, I'll go ahead and stop right here with a quick plug from our sponsors. All right, welcome back. As mentioned in the intro, my guest today is Catherine DeVoris, a psychiatric occupational therapist originally from South Africa, but now working here in Virginia Beach. Welcome to the show, Catherine. Hello. Thank you for having me. Hello to your listeners. Yeah, so happy that we're finally able to make this work. It was uh, actually scheduled for a while back, and uh, I've had some things juggling with the, the kids, and my wife had surgery that was rescheduled and moved around. So thanks for being so flexible with me. I appreciate that. Oh, of course, with me too. Life, that's such as life. <laughs> we have yeah, to uh, right. roll with the punches sometimes. Yeah, definitely. And, and, and I think that's, uh, that's probably a piece of what we'll get into in our conversation is, is being flexible and, and being mindful at the same time. So before I get into like any questions or the actual topics that we'll cover today, I'm starting every show by letting our listeners know what we do at Veterans Path and why we're doing this show, not this episode in particular, but just the podcast writ large. So Veterans Path, what we do is we introduce veterans to meditation and mindfulness, typically in outdoor settings, so they can rediscover peace, acceptance, transformation, and honor. And that's where the word path in our name comes from, peace, acceptance, transformation, and honor. And the point of this podcast is to make people more aware of what we do to increase support and attendance at our retreats while simultaneously reducing the stigma around seeking mental health support. Listeners can directly support Veterans Path by clicking on the support button on the podcast or by visiting veteranspath.org forward slash donate. Okay, that all out of the way, we'll get into our questions. 
So what I like to do with each guest outside of the professional bio that, that you know, I started with, um, what would you like our listeners to know about you outside of the professional side? Like, who are you? What's your background? What's your family makeup? Where are you from? That kind of thing. Okay, good. great question. Um, so I, as you mentioned, I'm originally from South Africa, Johannesburg, particularly. So that is the very city-based, I call it the mini New York of South Africa. It's very, <laughs> it's very hustle and bustle, very busy. Um, I'm, I was born and bred there. I went to school there, went to university there. And um, I am Greek by heritage. My grandparents came from Greece on the big ships a long time ago and settled in South Africa. And so I'm really, really proud of my Greek heritage. It comes into a lot of different areas of my life. It comes into cooking. It comes into culture. It comes into how I engage with people. So yeah, a little bit about me. I'm a, I'm a foodie. I love food. I love having, <laughs> um, being Greek helps. I love cooking. I love speaking with people over meals, good food. Um, I love getting together with people and having like meaningful one-on-one conversations as opposed to sort of like general small talk. My husband's better at the small talk part of things. He's the, um, <laughs> he's the party, the party trick extrovert. Yes. <laughs> Um, so it really is, you know, I'm, I'm a very open and honest person. I like very meaningful, deep conversations with people. I love the ocean. So I suppose landing up in Virginia beach was kind of in our destiny and in our path, because I've always wanted to live close to the ocean, being outdoors and just having a, a little bit more of a relaxed form of life as opposed to a hustle bustle of a, um, of a city. So yes, I think that's me in a nutshell. <laughs> if you have any other questions. <laughs> Uh, oh yeah, uh, that's the end of our show. Thanks very much. <laughs> no, uh, that, that's great. Um, and, and for our listeners, uh, for those of you who may not know this about me, I was actually born in South Africa, and that's how Catherine and I got to know one another is our South African background. Yep. And I actually the the last guest that I had on the show, uh, Barry Zorestein, Zorestein. Sorry, I pronounced it wrong again. Um, <laughs> he's he's uh, from Rhodesia, or formerly from Rhodesia, now now Zimbabwe, and he lives in mm-hmm. Australia. So, for those of you who listened to two episodes in a row, and you realize that I have a connection with Southern Africa in two <laughs> of my episodes, it does have to do with my heritage as well. But uh, obviously, now I'm a, a, an American. But um, yeah, you mentioned South Africa and your Greek background, obviously. So. Catherine is here in the Virginia Beach area. We've started a, a local mindfulness mastermind group. I think one of the upcoming mastermind group get-togethers, you're going to have to cook us some of that Greek food. Oh, I'm definitely. sure the, the group that sounds would love like a that. plan. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. And then as, as far as the, the hustle bustle of, of uh, Johannesburg uh, converted to Virginia Beach, how's that change of pace been for you? It's it's been fantastic. I, I've kind of taken to this like a duck to water. Like, as I mentioned, I always wanted to be a part of a different set lifestyle, um, a little bit more slow paced, a little bit more, you know, not that um, Johannesburg isn't family orientated, but there's a, just a lot more going on here in Virginia Beach that has, you know, outdoorsy things to do. And um, obviously missing my family back in South Africa, the big component there. But it really has been a, a relatively easy adjustment despite missing family. Nice. Well, that's good to hear. So your psychiatric occupational therapy, how did you land on the road to that as a profession? Okay, so I have to backtrack a little bit here. Um, I originally sure. wanted, decided to become an OT thanks to my mom. She was um, a kindergarten teacher. 
and or she's well she's actually retired now but she was a kindergarten teacher at the time when I when I was applying for colleges and she said to me well, come and have a look at the OTs at the school I think you'll really enjoy it I've always loved kids I've always really engaged well with kids so I I went along and really observed job shadowed I think for about two or three weeks and just fell in love with the profession and I think this is one of the components of occupational therapy that a lot of people know about is the pediatric component so Look, you know, working with kids with sensory issues or learning difficulties or even physical issues like children with cerebral palsy or autism. So that really became my mission. I was like, this is fantastic. I applied to um, the University of Witwatersrand in Johannesburg and got in, not even knowing that there was a mental health component to this whole uh, degree. And so our South African Occupational Therapy training is a four year honors degree training with a year of community service after the fourth year. And the four years are divided quite equally into three sections of practice. So there's the mental health components, there's the pediatrics, and there's the physical condition. So this is people with spinal cord injuries, amputations, um, strokes, all the, any type of physical injuries, hand injuries, whatever it might be. And so from our very first year in the field, we get a lot of practical experience. And my very first practical experience was at a psychiatric facility. So this, of course, was a huge shock for me because at first of all, I didn't sure. realize that OT had this component. But in that same moment, it was completely transformational. So I was you know, able to see that no injury, whether it is physical or mental, is ever outside of the boundaries of mental health. Even if you have a physical injury, you're dealing with some elements of mental health because you're adjusting to a new let's say you've had a spinal cord injury you might be adjusting to a wheelchair you might be adjusting to a new way of life adjusting to communicating differently and all those areas involve mental health and wellness and emotional wellness um when when we met originally um you had mentioned sensory intelligence um yes. is that that's a piece of everything that you learned there in your occupational therapy education so it's actually a postgraduate training. It's actually an, ex an, an extra bit. It, it stems from, and we can, we can touch on this um, a little bit later, or even probably branch into it now, but it does stem from sensory integration, which is a pediatric um, practice. So the doctor who, um, she's a doctor of occupational therapy, who developed sensory intelligence, she started as a sensory integration occupational therapist. And what she was seeing was, obviously a lot of children with sensory issues. So these are usually your kids who with quite severe sensory issues, not the kids who like won't have squash because they don't like the taste of it or won't have oats in the morning because of the taste. It's all the, the texture. texture. It's really, it's really the kids who can't walk on grass because of the, the sensation under their feet. It's the kids who can't oh, wow. have anything soft. So they, you know, the parents are very limited in what they can feed them or the kids who can't wear um clothing because it scratches or itches so these are kind of your you know severe kids who end up in with occup in occupational therapy but what what um, dr Anne-Marie lombard started seeing was that parents also had some sensory issues not to the extreme of the kids that they were bringing in but to a point where it was affecting how they were coping with things, their stress levels, their levels of arousal. So meaning like how awake they were in the day to like look after their kids, to drive to work, to be productive. And so she developed the sensory intelligence profile. And um, that really is a, a fantastic 
questionnaire that it's an online questionnaire and then you have a report back with a trained sensory intelligence practitioner which I am and you have you go through all areas of your life and how you can sort of adapt and modulate and regulate your sensory experience of your world to get you to like the best peak performance that you can be at interesting so the online profile because uh, before I met you, I'd, I'd heard of, I'd heard of sensory awareness, yes. but not so much sensory intelligence. This online profile is is this something that's hosted in in the United States, or is it something that's hosted from England or somewhere else? As it's a, from it's from it. originally from South Africa. So Dr. Anne Marie Lombard, yes, yeah. So <clears throat> she is a um, South African occupational therapist. And she is expanding. So I'm hopefully hoping to be sort of like the US branch of expansion, but she's already in the UK running some workshops and, and working in companies. So actually her PhD was in call centers, because as you can imagine, call centers are really a high intensity environment to work in. And for some people, they might, you know, do really well in that type of environment, but for other people, it's not an ideal environment. And that's why there's a really high turnover in call centers and a really, really high stress and burnout rates. So she's developed a screening profile for um, call centers to help people better screen and hire people that are going to stay at the call center for longer and not get as stressed sure. and, and burnt out from the, from the process. I mean, I could, you know, we'll probably have another whole podcast on sensory intelligence because I could talk about this for days. It really is a fun <laughs> and, and it, it ties into mindfulness so beautifully because, you know, in order to be mindful, we have to engage with our senses. When we do a body scan, when we do a sitting practice, when we just do a, a mindful walk in nature, which we did at the Botanical Gardens, you have to engage your senses. You have to be right. present and having that deeper awareness of what senses you are more sensitive to helps you engage in a very meaningful way in the world. So it's a really great um, tool to have. Yeah, it sounds like they do tie together exactly. I mean, yeah. Uh, it's perfect. And I mean, that that's great that you're going to be uh, potentially the kind of the start of the U.S. branch of that that uh, sensory intelligence uh, kind of a, awareness here in, in the States. So that's yeah. great. Yeah. So. Your practice in South Africa, what did that look like before before you left? So your, I had your professional practice. My, yes, yes. So I had so after my um my community service and my college years, I went to the same psychiatric hospital that I had the initial eye awakening experience with and kind of did another four or five years training there. And that's where I was introduced to mindfulness, to DBT, dialectic behavioral therapy, which is a component of cognitive behavioral therapy. And then I really okay. made some really strong connections with psychiatrists and psychologists and eventually went on to work in an incredible multidisciplinary psychiatric outpatient wellness center. I know that's a, bit, a big mouthful, but it basically, <laughs> <laughs> it's basically um, psychiatrists, psychologists. We had a social worker, myself. And we worked together as a multidisciplinary team to really target people at the just right challenge, just right point. So a psychiatrist who would recommend medication was then supported by a psychologist doing talk therapy and then myself doing occupational therapy and skills training and coping skills. So, you know, a patient really got a really full service and the amount of medication they had to be on was decreased. They recovered a lot quicker. And that just kind of proved the multidisciplinary approach. So that was really my practice since 20, 
2016, 20, 2015, it started 2016. Um, it was kind of like fully up and running. And I want to say I did about 35% one-on-one therapy. So this was kind of, you know, people would come to me and they'd had a depressive episode or they were feeling really anxious or they had bipolar or PTSD. Um, and I would work with them one-on-one similar to a life coach, but I suppose with more understanding of the mental health and wellness component, really looking at how to get them into a really functional part back into society. Because often people with mental illness, like any illness or dysfunction, you withdraw from your, your general occupational performance. So how you engage in the world, whether you're a dad, a teacher, a, you know, a home maintainer, whatever it might be, you withdraw from those areas of your life to some degree because of the stress and tension of of the disorder. So that was the one-on-one therapy. Then I would do about 20% um, of my time would be spent in group work with adults and adolescents, which is really fun. I love group work, which is why I run workshops now um, at, at the moment. And I ran them in South Africa. I just really enjoy the group process. There's just a really deeper level of um, understanding and, and altruism that you get when you put a whole bunch of strangers together and get them to <laughs> <Right>. learn, <laughs> get them to learn skills and develop together. And then I did a lot of insurance work. So this would be our medical insurance companies would refer a client to me. Let's say they had been off work for any, anywhere between six to 18 months for a mental health reason. There was physical as well, but I mainly saw people with mental health issues. And I would be responsible for doing the full assessment to kind of get their baseline level of functioning. And then I would rehab them back to work. So that's where my postgraduate training comes in, the vocational rehabilitation, the VOC rehab. And that is kind of getting people back to work so that they can maintain and sustain working performance and not, you know, get back to work and then leave again and get back to work and leave again. Because that's often a pattern that is seen with people with mental illness, unfortunately, because they're not receiving the correct initial rehabilitation support as well as support in the workplace. Um, but that's a whole yeah, other. <laughs> I'm sure that's a, I'm sure that's a downward spiral. I mean, as soon as you get there, uh, you have some type of challenge, you have to leave now and then you come back and it just compounds upon itself over and over. You, you know, your stress level and everything that you're dealing with, uh, that those challenges that you're dealing with probably become harder and harder every time you come back. So having somebody like yourself to support, you know, I think it would be critical. Exactly. And that's the thing that some people don't realize is, you know, they will have gotten better and done a lot of rehab and work on themselves outside of the workplace. But then when they get back into the workplace, I mean, it's human nature. People want to know where you've been, what you've been up to. Then there's also obviously an element of stigma still associated with sure. mental health, which is one of my big passions and drives is to just communicate and advocate for people with mental health and wellness and, and mental illness because it really is stigma can be such a debilitating. It can actually be worse than the problem sometimes because Absolutely. people really feel isolated and and completely out of control because it's you know it's not their perception, it's other people's perception. Right. I and mean, people perceive it as a weakness. Yeah. And it's you know, it's it's not that. It's it is something that is is correctable in in many cases with some work but some people because they perceive its weakness won't go out and seek that mental health support and that uh, like i mentioned before that's one of the missions of this podcast and about veterans path as a whole is to break down that stigma like you're trying to do this is amazing so 
Yeah. So with the the sensory intelligence um, and then your practice in South Africa, uh, what what brought you to the States? And <laughs> then and, and then how has that changed your professional practice? Uh, how is it kind of how have your expertise transferred to the States? I mean, you mentioned that sensory intelligence is kind of a South African thing. Mm-hmm. How is this all transferred to the States? Mm-hmm. Well, yes. I mean, I had a, a, a fantastic, wonderful practice in, in South Africa, and it was really, really hard to leave. But um, my husband got an opportunity, this side of the world, and we we're always up for a little bit of an adventure. So we decided <laughs> to come and check it out, and we haven't left since. <laughs> so <laughs> we, yes, it, it, it's been it's been a transition. And as I mentioned, the you know, I don't think. The, my the occupational therapy psychiatric side transferred as much as I would have liked it to. So it has more transformed. Um, and okay. fortunately, unfortunately, I'm still figuring out which one it is because it has been me <laughs> redefining what I do and kind of, you know, explaining to people, but it, it does open up a lot of conversation, which I love having. And it kind of gives people and me an opportunity to speak to people and tell them what I'm about. But it's kind of transformed into more of an emotional wellness consulting and coaching um, because coaching is really big in the States and it's kind of transformed more into that. It's like, as I mentioned, essentially what I was doing in South Africa, however, it has, you know, my expertise have a lot more backing in mental health and wellness and sort of like holistic therapy and training as a whole but it's but in essence it kind of translates to that and I do I work at the moment with companies and individuals and so I'm using all the same skills all the same training it just sometimes under a different umbrella nice so you mentioned that stigma that people have in kind of in the workplace of mental health yeah. Um, is, do you think that is the toughest part of implementing a corporate culture where mental health is a priority or, or what, if, if not, what is the toughest part? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, de- I definitely think it's a component of that. Um, there are many challenges when you're looking at corporate culture. I think one of the starting challenges is that people actually don't know what culture means and how to enforce culture, how to really you know, look at moving a culture, you're not looking at just sending people to seminars and making sure people count their steps. And, you know, once off one hit wonders, you really need to shift an underlying conversation and feeling that a company is having. So yes, of course, stigma falls right into that. Because if you have, you do have a culture of stigma, in terms of mental health, mental health is a weakness. And anxiety is a weakness if you can't manage your stress levels, then you're weak. If you feel a bit down one day, then you're not coping. If that is kind of like the unspoken sentiment in the office, people will not ask for help when these things arise. Then what ends up happening is people end up burning out and dropping the ball in other spectacular ways. And if you had, if someone had just reached out and asked for help initially, that so much could have been prevented. So a lot of it is about creating awareness around around stigma, definitely. And that's where a lot of what I do comes in, just starting conversations. But I think the other two big, big well, toughest challenges are buy-in from employers and employees, and then consistency. So buy-in is so important because again, it's not a like, 
shifting culture or implementing a mindfulness program in a, in a company is not just about like buying an online program and hoping that right. everyone clicks in or, um, <laughs> sure. you know, like in, investing a certain amount and saying, okay, awesome, you guys go for it. It really is work on all different levels. And that is one of the biggest things that I have seen both in South Africa and here in the States is that you really need buy-in from the top. You need your top execs, you need the HR and you need, if there's a wellness component, employee wellness component to the company, that's great. But you really need those like founders to be in place. And then you need to come in from the bottom and help engage the employees. But if you have a, you know, if, if a company decides, okay, we're going to invest in a once a month meditation class and the top people in the company are not coming to that meditation class, the message it's sending is that I don't have enough time to do this. I'm too busy to do this. This isn't as important, but you right. guys should do it, right. <laughs> which then leaves people feeling very uncertain. Well, I mean, if I, if they don't have enough time, why do I have the extra time to meditate for 10 minutes? I shouldn't sure. have extra time. I should be working. So even unspoken messages get sent around in when you're not showing up for the programs that you're investing in. Yeah. Um, Totally. I mean, this, this is actually perfect. You, you uh, kind of went right into the next question that I was going to ask is what can leaders do to implement that culture uh, of, you know, where mental health is a priority and that buy-in piece and consistency is absolutely critical. And where I found um, in the SEAL teams where I had people uh, where they, where the stigma started getting broken down was I had a big calendar on my wall behind where I worked big calendar that everybody could see and I would just mm -hmm. write down you know everything that I had going on for the day and for the different days that I was going to go see the psychologist I would write psych appointment in big red letters that everybody could see and okay. you know initially guys were like they would come up to me like hey hey man what's going on are you are, are you okay I'm like yeah I'm doing fine what what what's up and like well I see you got psych appointment written on your calendar <laughs> and I was like yeah well that's because I'm trying to maintain my mental health it's mm -hmm. just like going to the gym where you try to maintain your physical health. You don't have to have something wrong with you necessarily physically to go to the gym. We don't necessarily have to have something wrong with you or a mental challenge to go and seek mental health support. It's something that it's, you have to maintain it. And, uh, and, and once people started seeing that openly and, and me as a leader going, and not, not meaning to sound like I'm tooting my own horn, but I'm trying to show an example here, uh, then I saw my guys starting to go. And, and they were openly talking about, yeah, hey, I've, got a, I've got an appointment with the psych today. And, and it, the stigma disappeared very quickly once it became accepted by myself and then even those above me. So that buy-in at the top and then and that consistency, Amazing. making the time for it is, is critical. Um, because like you said, if you don't show that you're doing it and that you're making it a priority, then why can you expect and how can you expect your people to do that? Exactly. Oh, that is such an amazing example. And it really, I mean, when you were talking, the first thing that jumped into my mind was the World Health Organization's definition of mm -hmm. health is health is not the absence of illness. You know, good right. health is not just the absence of illness. It's really all round holistic health, um, spiritual health, mental health, physical health. Um, there's just, you know, it really is in, it's all encompassing. And exactly what you're saying, I actually read a study the other day, um, a Kentucky based um, I'm, I can't exactly remember the company, but they were looking at a, a study that they were doing and they saw that 
the organization that provided positive evidence for the power of a leader's voice in simply starting a conversation around mental health. So it's not even like a specific skill or a, a, a whole technical plan. Just the simple starting of a conversation around mental health helped mm -hmm. reduce the stigma and helped provide a bit more support around the mental health components. Nice. And that nice. just makes a huge difference. Another sort of like interesting article that I read, and I've seen it come up a few times, and I've used a similar type of technique, is sometimes the word mental health or the word illness or whatever it be, it, it is triggering to people. And as much sure. as I'm an advocate for using those words and being able to create a good dialogue and a healthy dialogue around it, sometimes you can't just, you know, sort of hit your head against the wall and, and, and expect a different, a different result. So sometimes uh, right. going, going into an organization, let's say it is really old school and there hasn't been a, any identification of, of wellness or mindfulness or anything, going in there and saying, talking about mental health might be a little bit too much. And the study that I read said that they actually used the word resilience instead of sure. mental health. And that in, in increased employee engagement by 40%. So people who wouldn't ordinarily engage started engaging because now they were going to resilience therapy or resilience training instead of mental health. And it was the same thing. It's uh -huh. just changing the dialogue a little bit. I've, I've definitely heard or, or I've noticed a very significant uptick in the use of that word. Yeah. Resilience, <laughs> resiliency, and mindfulness. Um, so I'm glad. I mean, if that's what it takes, just changing some terminology, but to get the same effect, but for more people, then if hey, I'm I'm happy to change the terminology and and really uh, help gain gain traction uh, in in more people, a larger population. So resilience, not men, not mental health, not mental illness, but we're working to support and develop resilience. Yeah, love it. Yeah. And for me, really, it's it, along the lines of my, my training as well as just mindfulness as a whole is it's important to do what works. So I also love the word effective because it's not like mm -hmm. what's right or wrong, what's good or bad. It's what works and what works for you, what works for your company, what works for your people. That is what you need to do. You don't, you know, there's no one size fits all. There's no rule book. There's no five-step plan. As many people advertise as, as, as they can, there isn't any, you know, five-step plan for this implementation, especially when you're looking at company culture and mental health. There really needs to be an understanding and a, a sort of like an individualized customization of of a program and, and thought process around how to implement this. Right. Well, that, that actually, for your own practice, uh, that kind of blends to the next question. What does your own uh, mindfulness or meditation practice look like for your personal practice? So that, that's a good question. It varies. And it, it I think that's another really important um, component to look at because again so probably just stemming from what I just said there's no one size fits all and when I work with people individually or even companies I look at developing a toolkit so how do we put together a whole bunch of different techniques skills um, practices so that when you are feeling xyz this is how this is what you should do or in order to do this in the morning to get up and feel more energized, this is what you should do. And so people can draw on different techniques because, you know, if you, let's say you have the same 
protein shake every day for three months, you're probably going to get bored of it. And it's, sure. you, you know, it's not, you're not going to feel like it anymore. So it's the same thing with this type of practice. You need to, to use a little bit of variation. So my practice, one of my like sort of things that stick really, really well with me is my morning routine. I find it's the easiest to implement and it's takes the, the least amount of effort. I feel as soon as I get later on in the day with whatever else is happening, whether it's cooking or working or looking after, you know, my husband and my fur child, I have to, you know, <laughs> weigh up priorities to closer towards the end of the day. And so the beginning of the day is really when I wake up, I do a meditation as soon as I wake up. And this could be a body scan. It could be just a plain sitting practice. I also um, do transcendental meditation. Um, and so that's just a different technique using a mantra. And right. then I do, once I've woken up and I'm out of bed, I do a simple yoga stretching routine. It's usually like a salute to the sun or just some gentle stretches. And then I have a, a cup of coffee and that's all done in a very, well, I attempt to do it in a very mindful way. So I try not to yes. look at my phone the whole time while I'm doing that. I'm not checking emails. I'm not scrolling through Instagram. Um, if I am posting in the morning, it's all via the later.com app and it, it's all scheduled so nothing happens that early in the morning for me but it's um it's all really about then just being very very present and I find first of all I've gotten into a bit of a more of a routine with that which is really helpful so again with the consistency if if it's something that you're doing repetitively you, you kind of get used to it. and if I skip a morning I can really feel the shift straight away I'm like oh I'm a little bit more irritable or I'm not as, sure. you know, um, my mind isn't as clear. Um, but then also one of the biggest things is practicing. The real practice for me is through the informal practice of mindfulness. So like intentionally implementing mindfulness attitudes in everyday life. So right, trying right. to practice beginner's mind with all my new clients and companies, practicing patience and acceptance when things don't always go my way or don't always go as planned. Um, my husband and I also had the wonderful gratitude practice that keeps us quite grounded. And it's also over our morning coffee. We just mentioned three things that we're grateful for. And this is nice, really, that. yeah, that's really, really helped when we get like really homesick. You know, all you think about is what you had back home and your friends back home, your family back home. And it can be really, um, yeah, it can be, it can take you away. It can take you away from the present moment. So just having three things that we're grateful for in this very moment, being able to sit at the table and have our coffee together or, you know, walk our dog in the morning, like those, those things can just help you feel a bit more grounded. So those kind of make up the, my morning practice. practice. Yeah. I love it. And I think it's interesting. Well, first of all, I love the, the kind of the gratitude over coffee with your husband. I think I'm going to have to start implementing that with, <laughs> with my wife. Uh, I love the idea and kind of what, what that could do for, for you and, and your mindset for the day. Um, but then I also found it interesting how you mentioned basically varying it, varying your morning routine, but then also doing it routinely. So it's yes. almost like a, 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 almost like you're speaking out of both sides of your mouth there saying two different things, but really they do mean they complement one another in that you have a routine um, that you do regularly. But what that routine looks like may be slightly different here and there with slight variations within it. But the, the goal is, is to have something that you're doing before you're jumping online, before you're jumping into your day. 
something yes. that kind of gets your mind right and prepared for the day ahead. So I, I kind of I like the the way you kind of mix that that varied piece in with having a routine. And the other piece I, I just want to comment on is you you mentioned you know a, if you miss a day or you miss a a a couple of days, how you notice that you start getting getting irritable. Well, I think a lot of the time is um, people miss a day, and yes, there's physiological sides to mindfulness and meditation, but I think there's also people beat themselves up for missing that day. And as soon as they start beating themselves up, then they start getting more irritable, and then they miss the next day because they're like, well, I missed yesterday. What what difference does it make? And then it just spirals downhill really quickly. So if you do miss a day, I think the the thing is to just get back on the, you know, get back on the wagon the next day and just like, okay, you missed a day. It's gone. Forget yeah. about it. Be gen- be gentle with yourself and then get back on the bandwagon the next day um, rather than saying, well, I've, I've missed a day. May as well not even do it anymore. So be gentle with yourself because uh, it, that frustration is a real thing once you start missing those days after day after day. 100%. Yeah, uh, as as far as the benefits that you've seen from practicing, what what have you felt? I mean, you mentioned being frustrated or, or irritable, rather, if you miss a day. What uh, what other benefits have you seen from practicing? Wow, do you have a couple more hours? <laughs> there, <laughs> there are so there are so many, and one of them actually kind of like as you were talking about the you know not being hard on yourself and that type of thing. I feel like one of the other attitudes of mindfulness should be self compassion. Because it really has helped me develop an, an element of self-compassion when I do miss a day or I'm not in a mindful moment every second of every day, which, you know, for your listeners, that's not possible. <laughs> if we were in a mindful minute right. every single day, every single second of every single day, we wouldn't get a lot done because we would just be <laughs> so, so present and so involved that sometimes we do need to multitask a little bit. Sometimes we do need to kind of get into the flow and the zone of things. So just being compassionate with myself if I need to shift something or change something or if I can't do a meditation in the morning which is very 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 rare but if there is a a time where I have to wake up really early and get to something or get to a meeting and I'm not able to then it's just about allowing space for that part of the day and that part of myself that isn't able to as you mentioned not judging because non-judgment is one of the big mindfulness attitudes how do we get there and that's one of the informal practices how do, what is the story we're telling ourselves? What are the inter, what's the internal dialogue? What are the negative reinforcements that we keep saying? Oh, I failed at this. I'm no good at this. I can't do this. My mind's too cluttered. My mind's too busy. You know, all those things are, we know they're self-judgments and they get really critical. And so that's been one of the biggest things is the self-compassion and being able to be more at ease with myself so that I can be at ease with other people because I'm communicating with people every day on a daily basis. Being you know, at peace with myself helps me relate and empathize better with other people. Sure, sure. Uh, I love the, you know, the story that you're telling yourself, uh, the Brene Brown kind yes. of piece there. Uh, I, I've actually, um, through the podcast that we've had, the, the episodes, uh, I think Brene Brown has probably come up five or six times. <laughs> Uh, because that that negative self talk or that self doubt is so difficult to get past, and then not only that, but the stories that we build around those. I mean, we we often think things are going on that are that are actually not. No. Uh, we think we think other people are thinking things that they're actually not because we build up these stories. So 
another plug for Brene Brown. If you haven't seen her <laughs> stuff on Netflix or read any of her books, just check her out. She's got some phenomenal stuff uh, out there that's yes. very helpful. Um, as far as when you tell people what you do for a living, when you tell people that you practice mindfulness, that you practice meditation, what is their typical reaction? That's, that's a mixed bunch, really. Many people are intrigued and want to find out a little bit more. Um, some already know a bit about mindfulness, and we can have like a really great conversation, end up talking for hours. And then you have the some who say, oh, that's nice, and give me like a, I don't really know what you're talking about. That sounds good. <laughs> the blank look. <laughs> the blank look. Yeah. And sometimes, I mean, I get that from companies. That's really, you know, when you're speaking to people who have really no idea and you can't give them like a tangible outcome, like I'm going to improve your profitability by X, Y, Z if you meditate. Like there's no, you know, standard for that. So when people are thinking very binary and very black and white, this mindfulness concept sounds very out there to people. But right. when, when I'm speaking to people, my reaction is actually quite similar all around. I'm, you know, I'm very open and honest. I speak about mindfulness through my own experience because I feel that's the most authentic way. And then for the critics or, you know, the skeptics, I do then just throw in the research because there is so, so much neuroscience around it. There is so much research, so much brain development and neuroplasticity around mindfulness that, you know, even your very critical people can't help but be like, oh, well, let me give this a try. This, you know, this is, this can't harm me. Um, no, I mean, how, that's what got me into it. That's okay. literally, yeah, I was, I was a skeptic and, and I had a, a doc tell me the science behind it and, you know, show me what is physiologically happening in your brain. And once I saw that, I was like, okay, I'll try it out. So I, I, <laughs> so <it works. laughs> I, I empathize with those, those skeptics and those critics because I was one of them. Um, but now I'm also on the other side of that bridge. Now I'm a believer and, and a firm practitioner. So. But that's the thing you can only really speak from experience and in order to experience it it just takes you know a few minutes a day and then you build up your practice it's not like it's this big thing you need to you don't need to go on a retreat that's also one of my biggest things that I, I often tell people even if it's one or one or in companies is mindfulness has kind of developed this really big esoteric meaning and you know your big companies your googles and your intels and all the big companies are doing this and so you think you need a lot of money and you need to go on some like exotic retreat to retrieve a sense of calm and mindfulness you really don't you need yourself your breath um a comfortable place to sit and a little bit of patience well i i uh <laughs> I don't know what to say there because Veterans <laughs> Path, we do, we do do retreats, but I will say that we are teaching. Uh, I don't know that you need to go on a retreat once you've learned um, mm. the, these skills. It can be very helpful to learn these skills. Um, that said, the, the retreats of Veterans Path also are to develop a sense of community with other veterans that are going through similar challenges that you may yes. have. So. Yes, I I do. I fully agree. I mean, I haven't done, honestly, in all honesty, I have not done my own mindfulness, you know, silent retreat or meditation retreat, but I have done plenty of meditating and mindfulness. Um, and, I, you know, I, I learned that very basically learning it through apps. But if you mm. have to, if you have to go on a retreat to learn it, then more power to you. And, you oh, know, definitely. Yes. Yeah, so no, I, my... I am on both sides of that for sure. 
definitely oh, I, yeah, I, I, no I, I think to, I knew what you meant but, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you definitely need to do retreats I've done I've done tons of retreats um, but what I'm saying is sometimes scares people off they feel like they may need to just do this big thing in order to start and if they have right. access to a retreat and like your amazing organization is doing giving people access to retreats fantastic that is definitely the most it's just like going on a, on a health kick like you can start you know juicing some celery and, and carrots at home but if you go on a you know you go away where someone's making healthy food for you oh, yeah. and you're exposed to other like-minded people you're going to kickstart it it's going to give you a boost which i definitely Absolutely. encourage all people to do but you know don't i don't want it to scare people off that you can just you can have just a moment of of peace and be and still be mindful in that moment got it yeah okay yeah. perfect well thanks for the clarification there. <laughs> Go on the veterans path retreats. <laughs> <laughs> yes, everyone that's listening, go on a go on a veterans path retreat. <laughs> so um, we're probably coming to the end of the show here. We're about forty minutes or so in. Um, as we come to the end of the show, what have we not discussed that you would like to uh, make sure that our listeners do here or that we talk about? Um, I think we've dis we've discussed so much, and I really thank you for the opportunity. But one thing maybe I'd like to emphasize is that even though mindfulness can be a very personal and individual practice, the real work is taking the practice off your mat and cushion and into the world. And I recently went to a Mindfulness in America summit in New York, and this was really the theme. They were talking about how to take your informal practice, the the nine attitudes, the gratitude, patience, the acceptance, the beginner's mind, and use intentionally use these fundamental attitudes to right some of the wrongs in the world. And even if you're not going to change the world, to make a difference to the people and the communities in your life. And I think that's one of the biggest um, implementations and outcomes of mindfulness is is seeing what it can do. And I mean, just from my experience being in you know, new in Virginia Beach and having someone reach out to me through mindfulness um, and you having organized our little mindfulness mastermind group has been, has been phenomenal. It just shows what this practice can do and how it, it can make people more compassionate, more generous and more grateful with each other. And that's really what we need a little bit more of at this point oh, in, in the world. <laughs> absolutely. I don't know. You can get enough of that. So well, awesome. If if people wanted to reach out to you to find out more about the business that you've got going on or uh, or just know more about you, how would they go about doing that? Um, so my website is is to be confirmed. It is in process and hopefully by the end of this month we'll be up and running. But I'm okay. very, very interactive on Instagram, LinkedIn and Facebook. So do you want me to tell you those or will you link them in your, I, I will link them. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I, I mean, I know, I know I've got you on, actually, I think I'm connected with you on all three of them. Yes. So <laughs> I will, uh, I will, <laughs> I will share your, your information there. So and great, Catherine. Also yeah, just one ahead. more thing. I'm in terms of the sensory intelligence, since you brought it up in the, in the episode, if people are interested, sure. I am running a workshop in March and it's a three week consecutive workshop where we go like really deep dive into the profile so you'll get a full profile as well as a report and then we go into like three weeks of group work where we look at implementing the skills and integrating them into your daily life so you really walk away after the three weeks with some routines established some really take-home skills and a, a different outlook in the way you process the world so that's coming up very in cool yeah very cool yeah if you could send me some more information on that i'll make Definitely. sure to link that in the in the uh 
episode details as well. Well, Catherine, it's been so much fun having you on this show. I, I really appreciate your coming on. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's been wonderful to, to meet you and get to know you. And I look forward to many more to come. Yeah, absolutely. Like, like you mentioned, it's been get, great getting to know you a little bit better, my, my South African friend. And, and I know <laughs> our listeners will enjoy your story. So for our listeners, thank you for listening to our show. Please check out Veterans Path online at veteranspath.org. We too are on social media. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Pinterest, Twitter, and YouTube. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please hit the subscribe button and share it with your friends and families. And remember, listeners, you can directly support Veterans Path by clicking on the support button on the podcast or by visiting veteranspath.org forward slash donate. Thank you all and have a blessed day. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Veterans Path Podcast. Please follow us on social media and think about sharing your story with us there and potentially on the show. Together, we can make mental health a priority improving and saving lives.